0: Welcome to the latest episode of The Third Wheel, HSF's podcast on all things ESG. I'm Tim Stutt, HSF's Australian lead for ESG and a corporate governance lawyer specializing in market disclosure, risk management, shareholder engagement, and activism. Today, we are very excited to be joined by two members of our disputes practice, partner Briny Adams and senior associate Stephanie Crosby. Welcome Briny and Stephanie.
1: Thank you. I don't think anyone's thank ever you. described um, being excited to be joined by disputes lawyers,
0: so I like well, it. You're very friendly litigators. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the bar is not high on that, but uh, <laughs> thank I, you. I, I would have to say we have um, a limb in common for our practices, which is governance. So I, I am I am quite quite stoked today that we've 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 got a triumvirate of governance people. Um, and particularly good for today's topic, which is an interesting one and something that we've talked a little bit about amongst ourselves. The the topic for today is Black Letter Law Goes Blurry. That is governance and reputational risk exposures from regulatory non-compliance. In some ways, this is an area where we've seen quite a bit of movement over the last few years, sort of through the, the Hain Royal Commission and even further back to the GFC and beyond as a governance lawyer it's sort of always been obvious to me that there is this nexus between regulatory breaches and governance reform and governance focus but there has been a shift lately I think and and that was something that I I was sort of hoping to unpick with you too so you know The shift I'm talking about here is specifically this reputational risk overlay, the level of pressure being put on boards, and also the ESG lens, which is being applied to a lot of these issues, which previously were seen as fairly vanilla um, legal compliance matters. I might start with a simple question, which is, has this surprised you?
1: To be honest, no. The reason I say that is because I deal primarily in um, financial crime governance, uh, so governance in respect of issues under the AML-CTF Act. Austrac has been pretty clear since it first started bringing actions um, against companies in 2015 that it sees the role of boards and management as all about um, ensuring the safety of the country and making sure that um, their social licence is is on full display and that they're making decisions um, in the best interests of the public um, and that they are sort of um, holding directors themselves um, to account for that. So I guess what has been interesting is seeing this view from Austrac, which has been kind of out of kilter with the rest of um, the regulatory environment in Australia, now be embraced more um, by other regulatory regimes. Um, I think this concept of sort of reputational risk that Austrac had brought to the fore and the idea that um, you need to make decisions that are the best for the public and that um, make, make sure that you do the right thing, um, it has sort of, yeah, it's it's been very clear to them for a while and now we're just seeing everyone else um, get on board with that.
0: Mm, it, it makes a lot of sense. You know, you used the the phrase social license, which I, I don't know if you um you remember, but a few years back the ASX Corporate Governance Council's corporate governance principles and recommendations would, were under review. And it was it was um, a hotly contested topic whether or not social license would be expressly referenced in the recommendations ultimately it sort of fell by the wayside um, in terms of the terminology but i think the focus has remained and intensified on on the corporate governance um, councils principles and recommendations yes but across a broad range of areas as well um,
1: it, it's a particularly high standard and it's a sort of quite a jarring concept for um for governance of you know often some sort of big financial institutions that are making decisions for shareholders and, and 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 so forth but I think Austrac has always been quite um vocal in its um view that th- that particular regime relates to keeping the public safe um keeping people protected from terrorism and um, drugs child sex exploitation and all of those kinds of things. And so it's sort of um, less of a financial regulator and more of a sort of morality regulator in terms of how it sees the world. So I think that concept of social licence is inherently caught up in that and certainly the kind of media that um, flocks around um track related enforcement action and so forth um, shows that real sort of public um, appetite for um, holding boards accountable when things go wrong in that space as well. So I mean the social license whether it's um, directed by the regulator or not seems to be um, very much part of the public expectation Mm -hmm. now.
0: And one of the things we've sort of alluded to is the fact that this regime is risk-based, and, and the sort of the key expectation placed on the boards is overseeing implementation of risk management, um, well, risk management plans in relation to financial crime. When we're looking at that board level, what are the key obligations?
1: Yeah, so it's a really interesting one with um, with AML because unlike um, a lot of other obligations that, um, that are that relate to boards and, and management. There are express obligations in the AML rules that require the ultimate oversight and approval of um, an AML program and the related management of risk to be undertaken by board, and that's a non-delegable um, requirement. What's also interesting about um, that is that that requirement sits in the AML rules. The AML rules are written by Austrac. So you've actually got the regulator dictating its expectations on um, board directly um, with a view that that can't be passed down outside the organisation. And so you've really got to be meeting the whole time the the letter of what's said there, but also the expectations of the regulator that will make sure that its own views in terms of what it meant when it wrote that um, is reflected in what happens in, in practice. I think very clearly now Austrak has made the point, um, particularly through the current Star proceedings, but really it has been sort of um, increasing its murmurings on this um, for quite some time, that it expects... Um, risk setting in terms of what the risk appetite is, in terms of the controls that are put in place to manage risk, um, and in terms of ensuring that everyone understands their responsibilities, uh, to sit with the board to such an extent that if the board isn't doing that job to a sufficient standard, AUSTRAC will say that the program um, that has been put in place can't be a valid program. So the obligations sort of on directors to to, um, assess risk, set risk risk appetite and put in place a a framework for managing financial crime um, risk, And when I say managing, I don't mean just sort of identifying it but actually taking steps to detect it and stop it. AUSTRAC puts that responsibility ultimately on the board and has now said, if you're relying on summaries of that from your management and so forth, then you are not going to be discharging that properly. You actually need to be seeing the risk assessments, engaging with them, setting appetite and so forth.
0: This um, might be sounding a little bit familiar to some listeners who are thinking about other aspects um, other aspects of, of the law. So different areas of regulation, different ESG issues. Some of the ones that we've talked about a little bit in this context and having a similar um, focus on risk management programs and board oversight of the program and the implementation of that program. Uh, have been workplace health and safety um, now we're seeing a little bit on the positive duty to prevent sexual harassment and assault as aspects of environmental regulation as well you know when it comes to financial crime governance how do you see it sitting alongside some of these other programs and you know in particular one of the things that we've talked a little bit about previously is, um, boards are expected to have on their radar foreseeable legal risks, and, and um, you know, that is starting to become a more crowded field, there is, there is a bit in there. Um, you know, how do you see financial crime governance sitting alongside some of those other areas?
1: Yeah, it's interesting that you referred to work health and safety because I would often give that as the sort of comparison when talking about financial crime governance. That really, just like that, there's a non delegable obligation sitting on boards to make sure that things have been done um, to to an appropriate standard. That's the same as for financial crime. Um, I think that ties into um, what is expected from the management of foreseeable risk. Clearly, the risk of um, criminals using um, organisations to launder funds um, or to um, engage in other financial crimes is is a real issue. Um, And if you have assessed that the risk in your particular areas of business uh, um, exist... Um, then you're on notice of a need to manage that risk. Oztrac's um, view is that you manage that risk to such an extent that you're focusing on prevention, not just detection, um, and that you are doing what you can to bring that risk down to something that is manageable um, so that you're not accepting the, um, that that kind of activity will occur, you are actually in, in um infused with a responsibility to stop it Uh, that's austrac's view of the world and so this sort of concept of foreseeable risk is really baked into the legislation Um, and now not only austrac but also asic um, who's for the first time taken action in respect of 11 current and former directors of office and officers of an organisation for um, breaches of directors' duties in the context of managing um, that risk. You can see that um, both Austrac and ASIC are signalling that these risks are indeed foreseeable, um, that you should have a very clear idea of how foreseeable they are because you should be engaging with a quite sophisticated risk assessment process, and you should therefore be putting all the controls in place that you need to from a detection and prevention perspective to get on top of them um, and that any failure to do that is a failure that can be attributed to the board.
0: Mm, that's something which has very much been on, on, um, on our radar and the head office advisory team, that, that ASIC focus on um, foreseeable risks as well. It It's something that we've sort of tracked through a few areas such as cyber, uh, such as climate risk, where ASIC has been active out there in the market, doing speeches, including things in their corporate plan. Um, Whistleblowing is another area, I should say. Uh, Then doing market surveillance on them, and now we're starting to see enforcement proceedings come through where there's breaches um, pointed to. I think one of the really interesting things looking at STAR has been the stepping stone liability aspect and the stepping stone liability for a risk management type program, where a lot of their previous stepping stone cases have really focused on quite bright line um, Mm. continuous disclosure issues. And this one has been interesting, where they are looking at the quality of the risk management program. Um, And I think uh, that really does kind of underscore this, this, this expectation placed on the board. I wonder if we might pass to Stephanie now to give us a bit of a download on some of the other consequences which might arise where things go wrong in this area.
2: Sure, thanks, Tim. I think one of the ones, one of the key ones, is um, the risk of directors dues proceedings, which we've just been discussing. Most recently, we've seen that with um, the proceedings ASIC commenced against the star directors back in December. But ASIC has certainly investigated other company directors and officers for um, potential directors' duties breaches associated with not managing foreseeable risks associated with financial crime. Thinking about um, more broadly a company's disclosures, another risk is in relation to misleading or deceptive conduct claims or continuous disclosure claims, looking at what the company has said to the market about how it manages financial crime and how effective its systems and processes are as well. And I think there's an interesting analogy here to greenwashing claims. So when a company is sort of seen to actually overrepresent the way in which they manage financial crime risk and their ability to do so um, is something that we might see more of in the future. A sort of third area or third consequence is in relation to potential shareholder class actions. So we've seen a few of those in recent years where a company has potentially been um, accused of or alleged that they have not complied with the AML-CTF Act and that's had a potential impact to the company's share price which has resulted in a shareholder class action. A particular risk area for this type of class action is that Often it's the board um, whose conduct is in question because the board does have particular responsibilities under the Act for approving the program and managing risks. There's a particular um, potential concern that in those shareholder class actions the conduct of the board will be particularly scrutinised or questioned, um, including by giving evidence in court. And then moving away from sort of strict legal claims or legal consequences, there's obviously reputational issues as well if a company is seen to have not done everything that it can or should have to manage financial crime risks. So if they've seemed to sort of breach that social licence that we were talking about earlier in a way that might actually expose the public to safety concerns or financial crime. So I think there's quite a few consequences, but those are um, some of the key ones that we consider
0: it it's certainly an area where I think the consequences have been sort of writ large in the newspaper almost daily for quite a while um through various inquiries proceedings um so I think uh i I, I think a lot of People listening in will sort of be thinking of some of these examples that they've seen over the last few years. It's been a very active area. That said, I don't wanna finish uh, on, on on a bit of a downer here. <laughs> so, so I might pass to Brydie to give us a bit of a download on key things that boards should be thinking about to avoid winding up in such a situation. What are, what are the key takeaways in terms of um, good governance in this area?
1: Yeah, look, I know it all does sound a bit scary, and particularly when we're sort of dealing with boards um, about this, what's often put at us is "But we're not financial crime experts and we can't be, so how do we make these kinds of decisions? Um, And I think the answer is you're not actually expected to be financial crime experts. Um, There are other experts that can help you, um, but you are expected to know enough about the landscape that you can discharge your obligations in some in a, a prudent and considered way, and that you know the kinds of questions to ask, um, and that you know um, enough um, about the risks in your organisation. So the big takeaway is understand the risks. Do not rely on someone to give you a summary of the risks, um, even though risk documents can be quite long, um, boards are expected to get across them in a financial crime sense and make sure that they understand if they're being asked to introduce a new product or a new service or any, any sort of change in, in the business that they are asking about and understanding how that might be relevant to um, the risk of financial crime. That's the big one, Just understanding of risk and setting the scene. The other big one, shameless time is training. You can't discharge your obligations without a sort of understanding of what a program is supposed to contain and where the opportunities might be to test and challenge it and where there might be pitfalls um, for um, programs that track has publicly um, brought into the fore. So Um, It is one of those areas that bespoke training is a necessary thing. Um, We do it all the time. Internal teams often do it as well. Um, So having that training and making sure that you you sort of really understand the kinds of information that you should be seeing and what you should be doing with, with it is absolutely critical. And third one, culture. We talk about it all the time. But setting a culture, making sure that everyone knows what the risk appetite is um, within the organisation is is key. And, um, you know, we talk all the time about the tone from the top, but um, AUSTRAC and ASIC will absolutely be looking for that positive tone from the top that shows an understanding of... um, compliance obligations in a financial crime space, respect for the regulation and understanding of the importance of what's at stake um, and a no-tolerance attitude.
0: Tone from the top is definitely something that Tone we have front top. of mind in, in <laughs> a lot of the uh, corporate governance policies that we work on with clients too. Well, thanks very much, Bryony and Stephanie, for joining us today on the podcast. Uh, It's a bit of a third-wheel tradition to leave our audience with some interesting facts from the world of ESG, but this time we've decided to stick with uh, financial crime in particular and provide some statistics. So AML is um, actually one of the fastest-growing areas in terms of penalties. In 2022, credit and financial institutions were fined almost USD $5 billion dollars, for AML issues and sanctions breaches. That's about 7.5 billion in Australian dollars. The total since the global financial crisis is almost $55 billion US, 82 billion Australian, and Australia has contributed significantly to those fines with the biggest civil penalty in Australian history being $1.3 billion paid by one of the big four banks in October 2020 following some Austrac proceedings. The scale of money laundering is also a, a very um, interesting area and ripe for for some t- statistics as well. Estimates from the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime are that between two and five percent of global GDP is laundered every year, which is between. US 800 billion to two trillion dollars the equivalent of AU $1.16 to $3 trillion each year. And estimates are that for Australia, about $200 billion of that amount um, relates to funds laundered in Australia. Some shocking statistics, but as ever, thanks for listening. In the spirit of reconciliation. Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their Elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and visit our website, herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.